Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin this evening's lesson. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to again look into your word. I pray that tonight your word will resonate with us. Let it increase our faith and our confidence in your faithfulness. As we look into your word tonight, help us to push all the troubles of life aside and let us just concentrate on the things of God. And as we uh, look into your word tonight, I pray that, that we hear from you, that we don't just hear the words of the man who's speaking, but that we hear from you, that some part of your word touches our hearts, touches our minds, makes us realize what an awesome God we serve, and makes us realize that you are for us and that we are going to be fine in the long run because you are our Heavenly Father. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. We give him the glory and the praise forever. Amen. All right, well, men make their plans, human beings make their plans, and then God decides what his plans are. Every time his plan supersedes men's plans because his are the better plans. And we make our plans based on what we think is best. And then he implements what he has designed for us. I say all that to say, here's our plan for the next two weeks. We'll see what God does, but here's the plan. Next Wednesday, Micah will be standing here doing the teaching. The Wednesday after that is 4th of July, and we're not having a meeting here at GCA on 4th of July. So you have that night off to go watch fireworks. This Sunday, Alex will be standing here doing the teaching. The following Sunday, Barney Johnson will be here to do the teaching. We love Barney here. We plan, Janine and I plan, to start traveling on Saturday and to reach Terrell, Texas sometime on Sunday. And then the conference is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I will be teaching Tuesday night and Thursday night. And then we're going to spend the weekend there in Dallas. And then I think we're going to drive across Texas the southern way and go across to, into Tuscaloosa and go see my mom since there's no meeting here. So we're not in a great hurry to get back. So after teaching here tonight, I will be back in three Sundays from now. Turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 3. That's where we're starting tonight. Last week, we began the book of Ezra because we have been working historically, chronologically through the Old Testament. And we... Last week introduced the book of Ezra, and I told you that this is the beginning of the Israelites, specifically of Judah, coming back to Jerusalem 
after their 70 years of bondage that were predicted by Jeremiah, that were picked up by Daniel when he prayed to God that God would keep his promise of 70 years, and then he received the 70 times 7. So this was a very firm promise from God that 70 years was how long the Jews, the Judahites, were going to be in Babylon. And that in order to keep that 70-year plan, God brought the Medo-Persians down on Babylon because there was no way that the Babylonish kings were going to let the Jews go. And so Babylon was overthrown by the Medo-Persians. And through Isaiah, 150 years in advance, it was predicted that a Persian king named Cyrus was going to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. So sure enough, that's all occurring, and that's the beginning of the book of Ezra. I told you last week that Ezra and Nehemiah were considered a single book. And during this time, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, is also the time of the last three books of the Old Testament. That's the time of Zechariah. That's the time of Haggai. That's the time of, of Malachi. So the last three books of the Bible fit right here in this Ezra and Nehemiah time frame. In fact, when we get to chapter 4, you're going to see Ezra mentioned that Ezra and Nehemiah were prophesying right around that time. So when I get back and we rev up Wednesday nights again in a couple of weeks, we're also going to have to tie the Ezra and Nehemiah prophecies into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So there's lots and lots of Old Testament Bible study to be done around the book of Ezra. So last week we heard about the first wave of Jews who were returning to Jerusalem to build first, to build the temple. And I gave you all a handout. I gave you a timeline handout. I'm sure you all have these with you, right? Now the reason that this timeline is important is because the book of Ezra does not run strictly chronological. You're going to hear about different kings. You're going to hear about Cyrus and what he did. You're going to hear about Artaxerxes. You're not going to hear much about Cambyses or Smyrtus because they really were only kings for a very short period of time and had no direct influence on what was happening between the Jews and their return to Jerusalem and the building of the temple. But the basic timeline of events was that once the Jews started returning to Jerusalem, they began by rebuilding the temple. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. First, they raised the altar. Immediately, first thing they did was raise the altar so that they could start sacrificing and worshiping God. The worship of God was preeminent in their minds. Before they started building any other structures, they wanted to make sure that God was suitably worshipped. There's a real important lesson there for all of us before we start building great edifices or before we start doing anything that we think we're doing for God. It always has to begin with who God is and worshipping God for who he is. So that's what the Jews begin with in chapter 3. So far, there's been one wave of Jews who have come back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is leading them. As we continue through the book of Ezra, we're going to see another group come led by Ezra, which is why the book is named that way. And then ultimately another group, a third group that's going to come by Nehemiah, hence the book Nehemiah. So we're at chapter 3, starting at verse 1. 
Now, when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. That's the cities of Jerusalem. They had traveled back to Jerusalem. They were starting to occupy the cities around Jerusalem. And the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. It's important we miss it because we're not raised in the Jewish religion. We miss sometimes the importance of the fact that it was the seventh month. The reason that Ezra said it happened on the seventh month is because there's a really important feast that happens in the seventh month. The Feast of Tabernacles called the Feast of Booths. And so in the seventh month, Right away, the leaders of Israel say, before we start building things, before we even establish the foundations of the temple, we need to build an altar, and we need to worship God, and we need to keep the feasts. So they're going to keep the Feast of Booths. Verse 2 says, Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, And his brothers arose and built an altar for the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening. Okay, so here's the the political structure of what's happening. During the time that the Israelites were out of their land, especially when the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, were taken into the Assyrian captivity, the Assyrian king started sending people to occupy that land. There still needed to be people there. Otherwise, the land would become overgrown and wild animals would take it over. And so there were people who occupied that land of Israel while the Israelites were out of their land. Those people eventually intermarried with some of the Jews and some of the Israelites in the area. And those people became known as Samaritans. And the Jews hate the Samaritans, which is why Jesus telling the story of the good Samaritan was so shocking to the Jews. Okay, so the the Samaritans are living in that area. There's a large number of people who are Assyrian who are living in that area, and they are enemies of Israel. They're enemies of the Jews. While the Jews were also out of Jerusalem for the 70 years that they were in Babylon, the Samaritans and the Assyrians have started traveling southward. So now they're occupying that territory, and now here come the Jews back. And the Jews are coming back in waves, and they start rebuilding their temple. But we hear here that the leaders of the Jews were terrified of the people that were living in the land and living around them because those are the ancient enemies of Israel. So what do they do about the fact that they are terrified by the people groups that are occupying the land that they have come back to rebuild? Well, they don't say, let's start a battle. They don't say, let's start fighting them. They say, let's go worship God. Because if God gave us this land, he's going to defend us. If God is the one who brought us back here, he's the one who said he was going to deport us, and that happened. He's the one that said we'd be in Babylon 70 years. That happened. 
He's the one that said he was going to return us to Jerusalem. That happened. So now as we are terrified by the enemies around us, we should put all our faith and confidence in God. Let's worship God. Let's do the things that God said to do. Because before when we didn't do it God's way, we ended up in Babylon. We ended up in slavery. We ended up out of our land. We ended, it, was, it went terrible for us. So let's do it God's way this time. So they set up an altar on the foundation of where the temple used to be because the reason for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening and they celebrated the feast of booths as it is written and they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. Okay, you would not have any idea. It's probably not anywhere in your memory what those fixed number of offerings would be. It was eight days of constant offerings. So if they're going to keep that feast and they're going to keep those offerings, there has to be an altar in order to burn all these sacrifices to God. So they set up an altar, they established the altar, to curry favor with God because they're fearful of the people around them and they keep the Feast of Booths showing that they are going back to how Moses said to do it. You want to get some idea of what Moses said to do? Sure we do, Jim. Okay, turn with me back to Numbers. Oh, let's see, Numbers 29. Numbers 29, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Old Testament. Starting at chapter 29, verse 1. Now, in the seventh month, see now why Ezra mentioned it was the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall hold a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day of blowing trumpets, and you shall offer a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord. One bull one ram, and seven male lambs, one year old, without defect, also their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, and two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, and offer one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you." besides the burnt offerings of the new moon and its grain offerings and the continual burnt offerings and its grain offerings and their libations according to their ordinance for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Then on the 10th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall humble yourselves and you shall not do any servile work you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a soothing aroma, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, having them without defect, and their grain offerings, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement, and the continual burnt offerings, and its grain offering, and its libations. And then on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, 
you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall do no laborious work, and you shall observe a feast of the Lord for seven days. On each of those seven days, you shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, 13 bulls, two rams, 14 male goats, one year old, which are without defect. And their grain offering and fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs, and one male goat as a sin offering besides the continual burnt offerings and its grain offerings and its libation. And then on the second day, 12 more bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, and their grain offerings and their libation for their bulls and the rams and for the lambs by their number according to their ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering besides the continual burnt offerings and their grain offerings and their libations. Then on the third day, 11 bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs, 1 year old without defect, and their grain offerings and their libations for the bulls and the rams and the lambs. Going on to verse 23. And on the fourth day, 10 bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs, 1 year old without any defect. Go down to verse 26. On the fifth day, 9 bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs, 1 day old without defect. Keep going. Verse 29 says that on the sixth day, 8 bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs, 1 year old without defect. Verse 32. That on the seventh day, 7 bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs, 1 year old without defect. Keep going. In verse 35. And on the eighth day you shall have a solemn assembly, and you shall do no laborious work. But you shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, without defect, and their grain offerings and their libations for the bull and for the ram and for the lambs, and by their number according to their ordinance. Verse 39, you shall present these to the Lord at your appointed times. That's essentially what the word appointed feast means, set times by God. God has set aside particular times when he told Israel they have to all convene in Jerusalem, and these are the sacrifices he expects from them. So you will present these to the Lord at your appointed times. Besides, as if that weren't enough, besides your votive offerings, your free will offerings, after you've done all those other requirements, if you feel motivated to give a little more, then you can go ahead and give a little more. And your free will offerings, for your burnt offerings, and for your grain offerings, and for your libations, and for your peace offerings. And Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so now back to Ezra. Wow is right, by the way. Yes, sir. Uh, why is it called free will offerings when we've already established that free will is... Yeah, yeah you, you can see the point I'm yeah. getting to. Every time I talk about the fact that free will has nothing to do with how people get saved, I always point out that the word free will doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. It appears in the Old Testament, but only in the context of votive offerings. And even then, if you want to think that it's up to your free will, you'll notice where the free will offering was. It was after you had done all the required offerings. Right. So first you have to do everything that you have no choice in. 
you have to do all of that, which is extensive, which is why Sandy would say, wow, and only after you had accomplished everything God required of you, if you chose to give a little bit more, you were allowed to. And so that's the way the word free will is used. Never is the word free will used anywhere in the Bible in the context of how people get saved. When you're reading about how people are saved, free will doesn't show up. The decision of men, the choice of men doesn't show up. It's always God who does the deciding, God who does the choosing, and never is it human beings obligating God to choose them. And then big philosophical concept. If God has a will, a determination, but you have the free will to either do or not do what he says, how much of a king is he? Because you don't have to do what he says. You have the option to say, no, I opt not to. And if you believe that he can't encroach on your free will, then if he decides to judge you for not doing what he said to do, you can just simply say, no, I refuse to let you do that by my own free will. So there's only one will in the entire universe that's truly, genuinely free. And that's God's will. And every other will is subject to his will. But when you say to a whole group of people, you must do all this, but then if you want to do a little bit more, I'll allow that. Well, what are you going to call that? You're going to say, well, if you make the decision, if you choose, if you want to do something more, go ahead. And that's why the translators went with a free will or a votive offering. But again, that has nothing to do with how people get saved. Oh, I know that. Nothing. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, I'm thinking about Abel, and he gave his his offering, um, which was um, an animal. I think it was. A, mm-hmm. He sacrificed an animal. Yeah, but he only gave one that I can that I can gather out of the scripture. Mm-hmm. So, why so many of these sacrifices? How many people were there? Ah, no, chicken. <laughs> I actually saw a light bulb go over your head at that moment. I just, boom, you got it. Yeah, you're talking about Israel collectively, millions of people, lots of offerings. Abel, one guy, one animal. Yeah, no problem. So they set up an altar on its foundation. For they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily. Now we know what that fixed number is, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterwards, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord, the feast three times a year that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. So they were perfectly keeping exactly what Moses had said they were supposed to do, and the exact number of sacrifices, and the people were allowed to give more if they chose to. Verse 6 says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. Then they gave money 
to the masons and to the carpenters, and they gave them food and drink, and they gave oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission that they had from King Cyrus of Persia. And now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah, and the sons of Henadad, with their sons, and the brothers of the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, stood with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. You can go back and read in 1 Chronicles 6, 1 Chronicles 25 as well, and you can see what David did as he set up the temple. He set up song leaders, and some of the psalms you'll see were written particularly to Asaph, the, the leader of the music that was always part of the worship of God in the temple. And there were so many of them that David established courses. Who would be the song leaders? Who would be the musicians? Who would be the singers? Who would have the trumpets? Who would have the cymbals on any particular month? And they would go course by course in order to always make sure that there were songs of praise and giving thanks to God. What they did here was as soon as the floor of the temple began to be laid down, they instantly went to songs of praise. Instantly. They didn't wait until the temple was built. They didn't wait outside and say, someday this is going to be a great temple, and when it is, we're going to go in there and make some noise. Instead, as soon as they saw the beginning of it, because what they were witnessing was the beginning of the fulfillment of the word of God that they were going to return and build the temple and build Jerusalem, even in troublesome times. And so here they are. They're back in Jerusalem. It's troublesome times. Their enemies are withstanding them. It's just like God said. And now we're rebuilding the temple. They could see the hand of God in this, and they knew that they should worship God and sing praises to God just over the fact that the foundation was being laid. Starting then at verse 11. And they sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord that was being laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many people shouted for joy. So you've got a really noisy congregation at this moment. 
You've got people who are shouting for joy and you've got people that are singing and you've got cymbals and you've got trumpets. But then mixed in among them, you have all men who can remember the first temple and they remember the fall of the first temple. And now they see the temple being rebuilt and they see the hand of God and the faithfulness of God and it causes them to weep. And between all that noise, Ezra says in verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. There was weeping, there were shouts of joy all over the fact that the temple's being rebuilt. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Okay, now I contend that whenever a work of God is underway, especially something prophesied by God, especially something that God has demonstrated his faithfulness through, whenever there is something happening where you can obviously see a move of God occurring, immediately the enemies of God get busy. Immediately the enemies of God want to stop it. Because the declaration, the shouting, the crying, the worshiping, the praising, the fires, sacrifices that are being made, all of that cries out loudly to the reality of the presence of God. And the people who hate God don't like that because that is like a big flashing neon sign that says you're going to be judged by that God. And rather than accept the fact that that's a reality that God is going to judge them, they just try to shut down the praise and the worship and the acknowledgement of God because if they can shut it down they can feel better about themselves that's the case today that was the case in Ezra's day chapter 4 of Ezra begins now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and they said to them Let us build this with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ezra-Haddon, who was the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. So these are Assyrian people who have been transplanted into Israel by the king of Assyria. And when they see that the house is being built and they want to stop the work, they infiltrate. They come and say, hey, uh, let us come build with you. We want a part of this. We want to get involved in all this. This seems like a good enterprise. But, verse 3, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households in Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. In other words, no, you have no part of this. You claim you've been sacrificing to this God ever since you were brought here by the king of Assyria, but you don't know our God. And we're going to be responsible for building the house of God. We ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel. And they say, because King Cyrus, the king of Persia, who, by the way, is the biggest king in the Middle East right now, he's the one who told us to go do this, we're going to do it. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. How do you think they did that? How do you think they frightened the Jews into not building? And they, politically, they hired counselors against the Jews 
to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Okay, you got your timeline in front of you? Okay, so they are rebuilding during the days of Cyrus. That puts you in that 538 BC kind of thing. The enemies of Israel continued to frustrate them all the way through the reign of Darius. So you've got Cambyses, then you've got Smyrna, then you've got Darius the first. That means they frustrated them all the way up until 521 to 486. That's the time that Darius reigned. That's why this is important and why I gave you the timeline so that you can get some sense of the time periods that Ezra is describing. Because in a couple of chapters, the time gap between two chapters is going to be like 60 years in time gap. So, so you've got to get some sense of these different kings and when they ruled and when these different events happened. So here's what they did. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what they did was they hired politically connected people to go back to Cyrus, the king, and bring a bad report to Cyrus the same way that there are people in Washington who can be hired to go in and lobby in order to push a law through. That's what they did. They hired lobbyists. And they sent lobbyists to go back and convince the king that they ought to stop the building. Verse 6 says, Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, okay, back to your timeline, after Darius I, you'll see Xerxes, and in parentheses, Ahasuerus, 485 to 465, he reigned for 20 years. Ahasuerus was the king during the time of Esther. So we're talking about the time frame that Esther was in Shushan, was in the palace. That was the king who took Esther to wife. Ezra says, verse 6, now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, the enemies of the Jews wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, see the next king? Next king down, Artaxerxes, 464 to 424. He reigned for 40 years. And in the days of Artaxerxes and Bishlam and Mithradeth and Tabiel and the rest of his colleagues, they wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from the Aramaic. So all this is telling you is that with each successive new king that came along, they hired lobbyists, they wrote letters, and they kept saying, the Jews are bad news. You don't want to let them do this. And when it reached the point where the Jews had built the temple and the temple was completed, they started working on the city walls. They started rebuilding Jerusalem, and that was the argument that finally convinced Artaxerxes. He goes back and looks at the record and realizes that the Jews have been political enemies in the past. So here's what happens, starting at verse 8. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Reham, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, 
and the rest of their colleagues, and the judges, and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erek, and the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Asnapper deported and settled in the city of Samaria, and in the rest of the region beyond the river, that's beyond the Jordan River, and now this is a copy of the letter which they sent to him saying to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who come up from you have come to us in Jerusalem, and they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute or custom or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Where they go? Went right for money. They went right to, hey, they're not going to pay your taxes. Now let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay any tribute or custom or toll. That's going to damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see any dishonor to the king, therefore we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books, and learn that the city is a rebellious city, and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in past days, and therefore that city was laid waste. We informed the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in that province beyond the river. Now the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river, he wrote, Peace, and now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me, and a decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days, and that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river. And that tribute and custom and toll were paid to them, to those kings. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that the city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. And beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. And then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, hang on for just a moment. I'm not really going to read all of chapter 5, but you need to see the beginning of chapter 5 because it says, Now, when the prophets, Haggai the prophet 
And Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, and the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. So, chapter 4 all sounded like bad news. Chapter 4, oh no, even the king, the Persian king, Artaxerxes, has sent out a decree, stop the work, do not rebuild Jerusalem. Don't do it. That sounds like bad news. I can't leave you there for the next three weeks. So I had to give you the beginning of chapter 5 because that's the exact place where you see Haggai and Zechariah. Now when you see those books of Haggai and Zechariah in the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, you will know where they fit historically. They are the prophets who were sent to Jerusalem by God to stir up the people of God in order to continue the building of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's where they fit in the Bible. So, okay, big picture. We're done reading for tonight. Big picture. I began tonight by saying, human beings make their plans. Human beings do what they want to do. They make their plans and they say, doggone it, this is what I'm going to do. The New Testament, of course, says that we shouldn't say, I'm going to go to such and such a city and I'm going to start a business and I'm going to get myself riches and I'm going to... What we should say is, if the Lord wills, I'll do such and such. Well, that comes right from the Old Testament and the multiple examples that we see, just like this example, where men created their own idea. God said, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Men said, no, it's not. God's reply is, yes, it is. <laughs> I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. And he sends his prophets to stir up the people to start the rebuilding. Why does Jerusalem have to be rebuilt? Why does the temple have to be rebuilt? By the way, this temple that they are rebuilding is then expanded. It's not as big as Solomon's temple originally, but it's eventually going to be expanded by King Herod and becomes known as Herod's temple. Why does that temple have to exist again? And why does it have to be in Jerusalem of all places? Well, because God has already said that his son, the Messiah, is going to stand in the temple in Jerusalem. So how certain is it that the Jews were going to return to Jerusalem after the 70 years and that they're going to rebuild the temple and they're going to rebuild Jerusalem? Even though all their enemies, even though everybody around them wanted to stop it by force and by writing political letters and by hiring their lobbyists, they were trying to stop, shut down the work of God that he was doing in Jerusalem. But they can't stop it because it has to happen because God has already declared that his son is going to be not only in Jerusalem, but he's going to die outside the walls of Jerusalem. So there have to be walls in Jerusalem for him to die outside the walls of Jerusalem. You get the picture? All I'm getting at is God's in control. He knows Okay, let me apply it now. If God has declared already that he has sent his son, his son gave his life, and the blood of that sacrifice has saved you, what does it matter if everybody disagrees? What does it matter if your enemies can't believe that you're saved? I mean, have you taken a good look at Conrad lately? 
I mean, how could God save someone like that? But Conrad doesn't have to worry about my estimation of him. He doesn't have to worry about his enemy's estimation of him. All he has to worry about is God's faithfulness to God's word. And if God has already said, for faith in my son, I will give you eternal righteousness, well, then all he has to have is faith in the son of God, and he's going to be okay eternally, regardless of what human beings think. So this is another example of human beings attempting to withstand the plan of God. It's a failing attempt, but they're going to attempt it. This same Artaxerxes, who stopped the work, is going to write a decree to let even more Jews go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. Despite himself, he's going to end up confirming what Cyrus wrote. Why? Because God's in charge. God knows what he's doing. And if he has that kind of track record, if he has that kind of batting average going, then you can trust him with not only your life, but your eternity. And that ought to be enough to carry you through the rest of your days, whatever they involve. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.